So, do you have any uh, verses in the Bible that you don't like? Yeah, I've got some of those that I've struggled with and um, thought, what does God mean by that? Really? One of, the, one of them is to be thankful in hard times. And I got to admit, um, I do not feel like thanking God in hard times. I feel like complaining. In hard times. That's my knee-jerk response when things go bad in my life. Yeah, you know, I, I, I read that verse, be thankful in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances, good and bad. And, and then consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And I hear that, and that sounds a little bit like enjoying pain. Kind of like a little sadistic. So I, have, I really have I've had a hard time with that. What, what about you? Have you had a hard time with, with giving thanks or even thinking about the idea of giving thanks for hard times and difficulties in your life? Are you the kind of person that says, yes, it's hard, it's rough, great, it's going to be a great day, I can't wait that comes from this? You know, I mean, is that how you respond? Maybe you do, uh, but there are a lot of us who don't. So... Um, as counterintuitive as it is for most of us, gratitude in troubling times is the key to maturity and to peace and to a deep sense of security. In fact, the only way through to the prize of completeness and wholeness and maturity is to learn to be grateful in difficulty for hardship. Because everybody faces hardship, but not everybody gets to peace and wholeness and maturity. Because everybody has problems. Like, we all have things that go wrong. So what's the difference? It's, it's the attitude that we have when we're going through those hard times. It's how we respond. Now, um, just in case you might think that a verse on being grateful in hardship is kind of a hiccup in the Bible. Like it shows up once and that's all. And God doesn't say anything else. Let me um, add to what I've just Read again, First Thessalonians five seventeen says, "Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus." James um, chapter one verses two through four says that we should consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, says, it says, In addition to this, um, we, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which he has given us. So suffering, perseverance, character, hope, love. We go on. And we can look at First uh, Peter, which First Peter is kind of the New Testament equivalent of Job. If you're ever in a really rough time of your life and you're dealing with suffering and darkness, there's two really good books on that. Job is one. It's a lot longer. First Peter also deals with a lot of suffering. And this is what Peter says to the people that he's writing to. This is First Peter 3, verse 14. It says, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You're blessed if you're suffering for what is right. You're, I mean, it's a good thing, he's saying. 
Then he goes on in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, you know, suffering in the body, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Like, wow. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That could be kind of controversial. Really? That if we suffer in our body, we're done with sin? I don't know all that that means, but I do believe if we suffer in our bodies for Christ, that we're going to do better in our battle against sin. Something happens inside of us. Um, now, now let me, let me, uh, let's think about this. So sometimes when you read the Bible, and, and I, I used to think, well, did anybody ever actually do this? You know, is this just, you know, are these just kind of inspirational sayings you put on a magnet and stick it up on your refrigerator? You say, that would be nice. Yeah, that's kind of inspirational. That makes me feel better going into Monday morning. But what about real time? Did people actually, were there, were there any examples of believers who did what, what their Lord told them to do? When they suffered, they rejoiced. And actually there is. So let me read this little count. It's in Acts chapter 5. What happened is Peter and the apostles get in trouble because they're out there telling people about the life that they can find in Jesus' name. Well, they get thrown in jail for it. And then, and then an angel comes and sets them free from jail. And, and what do they do? They go right back out in public and they start doing the same thing. Telling people, here's the life you can find in Jesus' name. Then they get taken back to the authorities that are really upset because Peter's saying, you guys are the ones who killed Jesus and, and, um, and they're, they're kind of upset about being blamed about that. So they, um, they gather, they, they think, what are we going to do with these guys? They're causing trouble in Jerusalem. So finally they agree, let's not put them in jail again. Let's just flog them. We'll whip them, tell them not to preach anymore, and then send them on their way. So that's what they did. So this is chapter 5, verse 40. Uh, this guy named Gamaliel was trying to convince them not to put them in prison. And so it says his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. So they were beaten. Then they ordered them not to speak of the name of Jesus and lay, let them go. Now watch the reaction. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So there you go. These guys actually rejoiced because they suffered disgrace for, for the name of Jesus. It was real time. It really happened. They actually experienced something. Like Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Uh, you're going to be blessed because you're going to, you're going to have an inheritance. That's uh, chapter 5 of Matthew. And I was thinking about this. You know, who, who understands this better than people who suffer? All right? So I was... Um, I'm reading a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German believer during the Nazi takeover of Germany. And he eventually was martyred. He was actually executed right before the end of the war because of his participation in a plot to get away, do away with Hitler. But he was one of Germany's strongest theologians. And he, he was 39 years old when he died. And in this book, so here's Germany. And the, and this, the religion, the, the faith is basically Lutheran. That's where Martin Luther comes from. In fact, Martin Luther, when he translated the Bible into German, basically is the guy who put the German language into writing. That's where it started, with Martin Luther translating it into German. And so, so it's a very Lutheran nation. And it was kind of tepid, lukewarm. And then, and then Hitler comes along, 
and everything is just going haywire. And there are Christians being persecuted, Christians being executed. And the church, the confessing church, those who really believe saying, how do we respond to this wicked, evil man? And so this woman that Bonhoeffer knew, her name was Ruth von Kleist Retzau. And Ruth wrote to a friend who'd just been arrested and put in prison. She wrote to him, we live in strange, she's 70 years old. She said, we live in strange times, but we should be eternally thankful that poor, oppressed Christianity is acquiring greater vitality than I've ever known in the course of my 70 years. What testimony to its real existence. It was a persecution in Germany that was making the faith in Germany come alive. And I think unless you sometimes go through that, you can't really understand it very well. So, for some of us, I want to I I focus on an area where it's difficult for many of us. Okay? And it's called your family. Okay? If you have your deepest hurts and problems, if you came from a hard family, are probably from your family. Now, some of you, I know that some of you come from good families, and you're like, I don't get it. Why, why does this, you know, broken relationship with the parents cause such a problem in people's lives? You know, I, I had it good. I grew up, you know, everything was supplied to me. My parents loved me. They took care of me. They nurtured me. Some of you are like, uh-uh, that wasn't my experience. And, it, and it's affected you in profound ways. And I want to talk to you about that this morning. Because your family, um, somehow... You have got to learn to be grateful, even for the painful home life that you have. This is really important in your life, okay? And we're going to get into this, okay? So some years ago, I read something about this. Um, A a writer that's had the most impact on my life spiritually. His name is Dallas Willard. Reading a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And he has this section in there, and I read it. It was about family. And I read it, and I went, huh? I, I went, double take? Come again? What was that? I went back and I read it again and I went, really? And I was so impacted by it, it actually changed my attitude toward my family. And my, I had a good family, but we had problems. It wasn't perfect for sure. We had some things, hard things that happened. And after I read that and thought about it, I thought, he's right. And I thought, I need to change my attitude toward my parents. And I was so impacted by this statement that I actually took this, this, this statement to a family reunion in Colorado. So here we are all gathered, you know, 60 to 70 people. And I was giving the devotional on Sunday morning, and I read this quote from Dallas Willard. And after I read it, I said, can we spend some time in here just giving gratitude for our, for our family and for our parents? And it was one of the sweetest moments in our family history. Just my cousin standing up and just starting to thank God for the family and the parents that they had. It was a beautiful time. And I want to read this to you. And, and just I want you to think about what, what Dallas is saying about the importance of giving thanks for families. He says, at the heart of our own identity lies our family, who we are, our family, and our parents in particular. We cannot be thankful for who we are unless we are thankful for them. That's a huge statement. We cannot be thankful for who we are if we cannot be thankful for them. Not certainly for all the things they have done, for they may have been quite horrible. And in many cases, we, have come to, we may have to come, come to have pity on them before we can be thankful for them. Nevertheless, the fifth of the Ten Commandments say, 
honor your father and mother. And then adds that you may enjoy long life in the land the Lord your God gives you. And Paul notes that this is the first commandment with the promise attached to it. The promise is rooted in the realities of the human soul. A long and healthy existence requires that we be grateful to God for who we are. And we cannot be thankful for who we are without being thankful for our parents. Through whom our life came. They are a part of our identity. And to reject and be angry with them is to reject and be angry with ourselves. To reject ourselves leads to sickness, disillusion, and death, spiritual and physical. We cannot reject ourselves and love God. When the breach in the human soul that is self-rejection remains unhealed, the individual and thereby society is open to all kinds of terrible evils. This is where the Hitlers come from. And for every Hitler who rises to power, there are millions who consume themselves and die in quiet corners of the earth. The final words of the Old Testament address this profound problem. Speaking of an Elijah to come, they state that he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That's a profound statement. So let me ask you, are you grateful for your parents? Have you ever ever thought about that? Or are you just disappointed by them? Are you mad at them? My guess is that you haven't given this a whole lot of thought, nor to the fallout from being ungrateful. Like Like the fact that we can reject and be angry with ourselves if we reject and are angry with our parents. The honoring your parents command is a really big deal. So I want to dive into this, okay? If you want to fill out those notes, you can do that. But I want to talk about why we can thank God for our family, especially our parents. Number one, because they gave you life. They gave you life. Let's read Psalm 139 together. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That's where you came from. You aren't you without your mom. Even if you were conceived in a one-night stand. Even if you never met your mom or your dad. If you were given up for adoption. God gave you your particular DNA through them. He gave you your mannerisms. He gave you your looks. So much in your personality comes from your, your parents. God created you through them. And, and if you re, to reject them is to reject yourself. So be thankful for what God has made when he made you. You know, sometimes we don't like everything about it. You know, I, I was kind of a mini-me for my dad. I looked like my dad. And some of you might know what it's like to be a mini-me. And I remember I was down in, in San Diego. I was at a, 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 it was a homecoming for the college, Point Loma, that I went to. And my dad also went there. So I was like in my 40s. And I'm standing out on the road, you know, and all of a sudden this woman, who's my dad's age, so she's in her 70s, I'm in my 40s, she comes running towards me. My dad's name is Lowell. Lowell! Lowell. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do I look like I'm in my 70s? I'm in my 40s. I was like, I was, I was so sad to look like my dad in that moment, you know, but I had to accept that's just, that's what it is. That's who I am. I look like him. I, because I came from him. And to be grateful for that. 
We're spending some time with, uh, with, uh, with Germany this morning. Martin Luther wrote this when his dad died. He said, seldom if ever have I despised death as much as I do now. It's plunged me into deep sadness, not only because he was my father, but also because he loved me so very much. And he said, through him, my creator has given me all that I am and have. Martin Luther got that. Um, so, they gave you life. They gave you life. All right? Second thing is this. Here's why we thank God for your family. God has a plan. Again, Psalm 139. Look what it says. Let's read it. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. To you, it might look like a flawed plan, but there are some things in your life that simply are not going to make sense. You just have to say, well, there's a plan. God's, God knit me together in my mom's womb. My days, days were ordained for me before one of them came to be. There's some kind of plan out there, and you may not know it all the time, but you've got to you know, look towards finding it. But, but accept the mystery of it. You don't have to like the, the hand that you were handed, but just accept the fact there's some things that you and I will never understand about our lives. Why were we born in the decade we were born in? Why was I born? If I had been born 10 years early, I would have been drafted into the Vietnam War. Why not 49 instead of 59? I mean, you ever ask that? I remember when I was 10 years old, sitting at lunchtime at Los Nogales Elementary School. The, the, the Vietnam War was raging, and I was thinking, oh God, someday I'm going to be in the war. And I'm going to remember this day when I sat eating my peanut butter and jelly sandwich in peace and quiet, and I was safe. I can remember thinking that day at lunch, you know, if this war keeps going, I'm going. And I didn't want to. I wanted peace. And I didn't have to. I was so glad when the war ended because I was not going to have to go to the war. Well, so that's a good thing. There's, there's lots of mysteries in our life. And I love Psalm 131. It says, I do not conserve myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Sometimes you just have to say, I don't know why I was put in this position. There are no answers for that, but, but I'm just going to be like a child at its mother's arms, and I'm going to accept the fact that I'm, I'm, it's, it's okay. I don't know why I had the big brother that I had. We had a lousy relationship. When you're in it, you know, when you're in your family, you don't know. All you know is that. That's normal. Your family. That's all. You're not in another. You don't have two, three families you go to. Which one, and pick which one's the best. That's the norm. And so I thought sibling rivalry and punching each other out and beating each other up, that's normal. Because that's what I experienced. And I was usually on the receiving end. I didn't dare attack my bigger brother, who sometimes was twice as big as me. He was big. There's no way I could beat him up. My, my goal was to dodge him and not get beat up. That was the thing. And so I had this brother, and he died about three or four years ago. And my dad said, hey, Rick, would you speak at his funeral? And I'm like, oh, man, what do you, he's my brother. And what do I say about a brother that they did not have a good relationship with? The best it got was at the end of his life. But all of our growing up days, it was, it was not good. And so I was thinking, okay, dad, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll speak. But I was like, oh. and so I started thinking, what can I say about Kurt? What good can I say about Kurt? And, and, uh, and then I, it kind of started coming to me. And, and so Kurt, 
um, this is like early 70s, 1970, 1971. Um, ancient history for some of you. And uh, I'm, like, uh, I'm like 12, 11 years old. And uh, Kurt is the psychedelic era. So my brother was, really, was into that. So he's, we had a four-bedroom house, three upstairs, one downstairs. He had the downstairs bedroom. He wanted to design his room. So he got psychedelic wallpaper, black and white. It went like this. You know, put it up there. Stripes on the wall. He designed that. Then he got black light posters. Remember black lights? Maybe they're making a comeback. Okay, Clark Gable, John Barrymore. Then he had a black and white of Bridget Bardot in his leather dress, leaning against a Harley. And then he would sit in his room with his BB gun. He'd shoot the eyes out of John Barrymore and Clark Gable and Bridget Bardot. So it was kind of weird. You know, their eyes are, are missing. And he had music. And it was before he had nice music systems. It was a jerry-rigged thing, really kind of tacky. But he loved hard rock music. And I did not. And so... It was such a scary room that he didn't want to be down there by himself. And so my mom and dad made me move from the piece of my room upstairs with my little brother, Doug, that we got, we were like this. We were really, we were good friends. I had to move from that peace and quiet into creepy room. And I hated it. And I was so scared. This place, he would play this song. The song that I remember is Iron Man. I am Iron Man. It's like your flesh is going to melt off your body. The world's coming to an end. That was our evening lullaby. And I thought, I I hate this room. And I had such a fear of dying. I had such a fear. I wasn't a believer. And I, I had all this fear and insecurity in me. And it was because that room really highlighted my fear that I eventually accepted Jesus. And so at Kurt's funeral, I told people about the creepy room. And he said, you know, in a way that he never knew, he helped lead me to Jesus through the creepy room. You know, the mysterious ways that God works, you just never know how God is going to use your family in your life through the good and through the bad. And, and just to know that God has a plan. Third thing is learn from your family's mistakes. Okay, they're not perfect. Learn from them. Let's read this together. The father of compassion who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. Undoubtedly, almost every one of us has has experienced pain in our families that we need comfort from. We've had troubles in our families. And God wants to use the comfort we receive in those pains and struggles to, to help other people who go through the same kind of thing. For me, you know, it's my parents' divorce. And I learned, I identify with people, with kids who go through divorce, because I went through it. I know what it feels like. And I can pass that on. I can identify. And you have those other kinds of pains that you can be a, you, God can use you to help bring comfort to somebody. Fourth thing, we can learn that no human can be God in our families. God said, you shall have no other gods before me, and that includes your parents. Your parents cannot save your soul. Your parents cannot relieve every pain in your life. They cannot be there for you at every scary moment. Only Jesus can do that. Your parents are limited. The sooner we learn that, the easier it'll be to be grateful for our parents. To just know, no no human can be God. Now, if you're going to be with family over the holidays, uh, that may present problems. Sometimes that's hard for people. 
Uh, I, I first of all want to say to anybody who's been in a family where there's been some serious things going on, like abuse. Uh, if there's ever been any kind of physical or sexual abuse with a family member, and you need and, and like to to be with that person is dangerous feeling. I would say you need to step away. You don't need to be with that person. You know, even Jesus stepped away from people who were trying to kill him. He let them put him on a cross. But before he was actually crucified, there were other times they tried to kill Jesus. And he, would, he walked away. So we do not have to expose ourselves to abuse in families over and over and over again. So that's, I know that's the serious situations. So other than that, so when we're just basically in more mild family situations, let me say this. Number one, to, to plan and repair for any damage, adjust your expectations about your family. Again, no other gods before me. Don't expect your family to give you what they don't have to give. Some of you can go back into a family reunion and expect, you know, everything's going to be hunky-dory, everything's going to be better, your parents are finally going to get it, and they don't, and then you're hurt all over again. I heard a counselor say one time, she says, you know what? What we do is that we want our parents to give us a red fire truck, and they don't have a red fire truck. We keep coming back into these relationships. It's like you're asking them to give you something they don't have, so don't expect them to give it to you because they can't. You say, I want, I want emotional connection. I want my dad to bless me. Well, he just can't. I mean, it's very hard for him. Your dad just isn't a feeling guy. He's not going to be able to give it to you. So just like, I'm not going to expect him to do that for me. I'm not going to expect that emotional bond, that thing I dream about that's in all the Hallmark Christmas movies to happen in my family. You just have to say, it's not going to happen. I want laughter. Your family's not funny. They can't make you laugh, okay? So don't expect your family to give you a red fire truck. Adjust your expectations so you aren't hurt and disappointed over and over again. Just adjust them. Number two, show compassion. Colossians says, and we all know this by heart. No, we don't. It says, it's very simple. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Here's the deal. Your parents were hurt. Did you know that? Your parents were hurt. And it's a good possibility that they didn't get it resolved. And when people who are hurt don't get their hurts resolved, they end up hurting other people. The old saying goes like this, hurt people, hurt people. And so what do you do? You show compassion for them. You know, I think about my parents and my grandparents. I go, they had so much less knowledge about these kinds of things and relationships. I mean, my platform, my baseline for, for living is so much higher than where my parents and grandparents were. I've known so much more. It's been built up. And so when you look back to those previous generations, just cut them some slack to know that a lot of them just did not have the knowledge for whatever reason and, and show compassion. Number three, if you have to deal with a problem, deal with problems directly. Go right to them. One-to-one. Um, if, you know, and, and deal with it in a way that, that it's calm. You can tell them, hey, this is when you do this or did that, this is how it makes me feel, um, how it affected you, and then try to resolve it. I was with uh, family once, and, and there was a situation arising that looked a little dangerous. And so I pulled a nephew aside into another room and said, okay, uh, I, 
I see something going on here and it's, it's not good and uh, you need to stop that. But it was a one-to-one deal and it stopped. And, um, and the, my family was protected. And sometimes you got to do that. Okay? Last thing, number four, is forgive. Even if they don't ask for forgiveness, you're not waiting. You don't say, well, they didn't ask me to forgive them. They never, they never said sorry. Why should I forgive them? Well, I'm talking to believers this morning because if you've received the, the forgiveness that Jesus has for our sins, you owe a debt to re- forgive everybody else in your life. And I would encourage you to have a goal to re- forgive everybody in your family, that you have no hard feelings toward your family. Wouldn't that be a beautiful way to live? No bitterness. You're, just, you're free. You're free. So um, let's do it. Make our families healthy. Be grateful for your families. The good, the bad, the ugly. Know that God's been watching out for you. And he's going to use, he's got a plan for you. And there's a reason that you are in that family. So I want to pray. Lord, thank you for the parents of every person in here. And there are some who may not know, even hardly know their parents. Um, there are some who were not raised by their parents. But God, you gave them life. You made them who they are in their mother's womb. And so we thank you for the gift of life that comes through moms and dads. And we thank you, Lord, that you have the mercy and the grace to cover for all the problems. Lord, you use even the hard things like creepy rooms to change our lives through our siblings, through aunts and uncles. So God, we pray, for, we pray for our own sense of just being able to accept our families so that we can accept ourselves and not be sick in our souls. And we pray, Lord, that you continue, continue your redeeming work in every family that's represented. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we want to talk about uh, spiritual family. Um, we've got a couple of folks that want to be baptized. One's kind of rebaptized. I want them to come on up. Bonnie.